inner peace is the ultimate source of happiness. Because your view is insane. Many paths to what you call God. Atheism itself is a kind of fantasy world. And the God of the universe wants to live in you. God hates you. 11 people have been confirmed dead. Let's stop the killing and choose peace. Blow them all away in the name of the Lord. That was the only form of Christianity I knew existed, and I knew I didn't like it. Morning. My name is Seth McCoy. I used to be the youth pastor around here at Woodland Hills quite a few years ago. Um, it's a real treat to be back with you guys. Uh, some of you have heard a little bit about my story. Um, I was adopted when I was younger. I was adopted out of a, a pretty dysfunctional home at the age of three, almost four. Um, now, one of the things that happened uh, in my early childhood is my mom, I didn't know who my dad was, and my mom wasn't really around. So my brother was my supervisor, but he was only a couple years older than me. So he and I basically did whatever we wanted to. And a lot of people, uh, when they hear that story, they have a lot of sympathy for me and go, oh, I feel really badly uh, about that. But the truth is, we had a great time. We did whatever we wanted to do. And um, so I was adopted from that home into a Marine Corps family. <laughs> you can feel my pain. It was physical and mental. It was, it was, it was hard. So one of the things that my parents had to break me of, uh, one of my habits, was I was a total snacker. I, I loved getting into the food. Um, after a little while, my mom had to start like hiding stuff from me because when she was gone, I would just get into stuff. I would get hungry. Um, I had an abnormal craving for sugar, and so I would just go crazy. I would take the ice cream and I'd eat it right out of the carton. I would get into my mom's like cake decorating supplies, you know, like the little like the colored gel that they use to like write words with. I would just squeeze that in my mouth like toothpaste. I would mix sugar water if I had to. I just had to have it. One day, I got into my mom's cake decorating supplies, and um, usually, like, she would move things around to kind of hide them from me. And this time, I open up the drawer, and there's a giant bar of chocolate. So I'm looking at this bar of chocolate, and I'm thinking to myself, my mom has grossly underestimated my ability to find her treats. I take this chocolate bar out, I unwrap it sort of like it's a Willy Wonka bar, like it's a golden ticket, I unwrap it really slowly, preparing myself for the, um, are there any chocolate lovers here? Like you, you know that feeling that happens. I don't know what order the taste buds, I'm not really a scientist, but like when that chocolate hits your tongue, both the combination of like milky smoothness and sweetness with the rich chocolate, that all mixes together to produce a mental and physical euphoria. So mentally I'm preparing for this as I raise the chocolate up to my mouth and I, I put it in my mouth and my tongue and my brain get confused because my brain is telling my tongue this should taste good, but actually this stuff tasted terrible. It was bitter and disgusting and my mind was ready for something sweet and delicious and what actually happened in my mouth was bitter and terrible. You guys all know what happened, right? My mom tricked me. It wasn't milk chocolate. It was baker's chocolate. It was terrible. Today I want to talk to you a little bit about atheism. And, <laughs> right, that's a real natural transition. Um, here's the point. For lots of us in this room that have followed Christ, um, me personally, Literally, Jesus Christ is the most meaningful thing that has ever happened in my life. Um, it's a source of incredible encouragement. 
It's a source of meaning. It's a source of purpose. I literally, I literally can't imagine anything more wonderful. And yet, you know, like for a group of people in our world, the concept of God, it's, it's not sweet. It's not meaningful. It's not satisfying. It's actually bitter for them. Uh, here, take a look at this video. Um, this is a guy named Stephen Fry. He's going he's gonna to talk just briefly about an atheist position. Suppose what Oscar believed in as he died, in spite of your protestations, suppose it's all true, mm. and you walk up to the pearly gates and you are confronted by God. What will Stephen Fry say to him, her, or it? I will basically... That is the Odyssey. I think I, I'll say bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I'd say. And you think you're going to get in no, on that? No, but I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to get in on his terms. They're wrong. Now, if I died and it was, it was Pluto, Hades, and if it was the 12 Greek gods, then I would have more truck with it because the Greeks were... They didn't pretend not to be human in their appetites and in their capriciousness and in their unreasonableness. They didn't present themselves as being all-seeing, all-wise, all-kind, all-beneficent. Because the God who created this universe, if it was created by God, is quite clearly a maniac. Utter maniac. Totally selfish. Totally... We have to spend our life on our knees thanking him? What kind of God would do that? Yes, the world is very splendid, but it also has in it insects whose whole life cycle is to burrow into the eyes of children and make them blind. They eat outwards from the eyes. Why? Why did you do that to us? You could easily have made a, a creation in which that didn't exist. It is simply not acceptable. So, you know, atheism is not just about not believing, there is a, is not believing there's a God, but on the assumption that there is one, what kind of God is he? It's perfectly apparent that he is monstrous, utterly monstrous, and deserves no respect whatsoever. The moment you banish him, your life becomes simpler, purer, cleaner, more worth living, in my opinion. That sure is the longest answer to that question that I ever got in this entire series. Wow. Like, that, that God is monstrous. Scott is a maniac, he says. Uh, here's a couple more voices from atheists. We're going to put up a couple slides here. Um, uh, this is Christopher Hitchens. He says, why do people keep saying God is in the details? He isn't in ours unless his yokel creationist fans wish to take credit for his clumsiness, his failure, his incompetence. God's clumsiness, failure, and incompetence. All right, one more. The scientific worldview is so much more exciting, more poetic, more filled with sheer wonder than anything in the poverty-stricken arsenals of the religious imagination. Like Dawkins and Hitchens and Stephen Fry, who was in the video, they, they represent a new atheism. It's not simply a belief that, like, or, or a questioning whether God can technically actually exist. It's actually like a group of people who are saying, not only does God not exist, 
but the idea of a God existing in our world and the people who follow this God that exists, this idea of God should be banished from our world. At the end of that video, he said, as soon as you banish God from your life, your life becomes more meaningful, more pure, more worth living. So for a group of people that call themselves atheists, if you take the word atheism and break it down, it just simply means uh, without God. There are a group of people that when looking at the facts, when looking at their existence, they say, I want to choose a without God life. Now, there are lots of Christian people uh, who, given that first video, would say, yeah, look at the creation around us, and certainly there are parasites in eyes that eat out and, uh, and cause blindness in children, and there is bone cancer, and yes, this God is powerful and does demand that you get on your knees and worship. And there's a group of Christians who would say, yes, that is the way that God is, that is the way the world is, and you should still worship him, because if you don't, in the famous words of Greg Boyd, you'll get squished. There's a group of people that totally believe that. And these guys on this video will just say no. And you know what? Actually, I applaud them for doing that. Because um, at least they have the ability to look at this picture of God and say, you know what? Even if I do get squished, I refuse to get on my knees to a God who creates such an unjust world, who causes so much sickness and suffering in the world. I just refuse to do that. Because you know what? The truth of the matter is, I want to live a life without that God too. The challenge is, I, I don't believe in the God that they're talking about. See, atheism, to say they want to live life without God, also means that you have to have a certain picture of God. Now, one of the problems that we have in our day, uh, among many, uh, as we talk about God, what's happened over the last uh, few decades and centuries as we've thought about the spiritual and supernatural world is we become less and less clear on where evil comes from. Uh, so part of the problem that we have to do is we have to help people have a more robust picture of what Satan is and a more clear picture of who God is. I would say that this is part of the task of the church, not simply arguing against atheist logic, but I would say that part of the task of the church uh, is to be a Jesus-looking community that communicates about a Jesus-looking God. Uh, I was able to talk to Paul Eddy, and I just said, Paul, you know, when you guys were putting this series together, why did atheism come up? Well, what is it that you wanted to say about this? And, and here's what he wrote to me. He said, when I think of why I'm passionate about conversing with atheists, I think back to my first extended dialogue with an atheist. He said, I had just graduated from Bethel with a Bible degree, and I got into a back-and-forth letter-writing dialogue with an older atheist man. He said, I was bound and determined to prove God's existence to him. Not least because that he offered me twenty thousand, or sorry, two thousand dollars if I did so. But the greatest lesson that Paul said he learned was his own. He said at some point I noticed that when I said God, this man heard Catholic Church. And what he heard when I said God was he heard the vicious nuns that beat the tar out of him in his private school back in the forties. I learned that his atheism was, in fact, a quite logical defense mechanism that he used to distance himself from the sadistic picture of God that he had been given as a child. I also learned to never try to start arguing with an atheist and start arguing them into believing in God until I first listen, learn, and ask them this question. Tell me about the God that you don't believe exists. 
Dr. Paul Eddy says, since doing this, I've never met even one atheist that that describes the Jesus-looking God when they describe the God that they don't believe in. There's like a, it's part of the task of the church to help clarify this picture of God that people have. We, We don't believe in a monster. We don't believe in a maniac. And part of what we have to do is to help clarify, like, um, these, these parasites that are, that are in the eyes of children causing blindness, they, they do exist. So, like, where do they come from? Bone cancer in children. This is wrong. Where does it come from? One of the tools that we have to have for this is we have to have a real and robust view of Satan and the demonic world. We just have to. Uh, I was talking to Greg about this. Actually, I pulled this slide off of his Renew website. Here's here's what he says about Satan um, and the demonic forces. He says, The Gospels frequently but not always attribute infirmities to demonic activity. It's not God who put parasites in children's eyes. We must remember the incredible stature and authority ascribed to Satan in the New Testament. He is called, among other things, the Lord, uh, the word archon of the world, He's described as the principality and power of the air and the God of this age. He is said to control the entire world and tone all the authorities of all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus and the Bible have a very robust view of Satan and the demonic world. There is a lot of demonic influence and power in the world that we live in. Without a robust view of Satan and the demonic, then the problem that happens is everything that happens that's out of our power explanation gets placed on God. Uh, In Genesis chapter 3, the writer of Genesis, in trying to answer the questions that Genesis tries to answer, which is like, how did we get here, and why are we here, and what's going on? Is there just chaos in the world, or is there some kind of order? We kind of generally know the story. Adam and Eve are placed in this garden. Um, there's two trees. One of the trees they're allowed to eat from, which is the tree of life. As long as they eat from the tree of life, they're getting life. And there's another tree that they're not supposed to eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, we know the story. A serpent comes up, tricks the woman into eating. Uh, the woman passes it on to the man. Then God shows up and asks the man what happens. And the man does what men always do. They blame the woman, right? It's her fault. And then the woman blames the serpent. However, given all of that happening, at the end of the day, God has to deal with rebellion. So in Genesis chapter 3, we get God's verdict on what's going to happen because of this rebellion. Because the way the humans have chosen to live, there's going to be consequences to this. Let's see what they are in Genesis chapter 3. So God addresses them in order. First, he addresses the serpent. He says, because you've done this, you're cursed. Cursed beyond all the cattle and wild animals. Cursed to slink on your belly and eat dirt all of your life. I'm declaring war between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. Like, the author of Genesis gets it brilliantly right. Do we see anything more apparent in our world than a war between the offspring of woman and Satan? Okay, let's go to the next one. So then he turns to the woman. He says, I'm going to multiply your pains in childbirth. You'll give birth to your babies in pain. You want to please your husband, but he'll lord it over to you. And then he turns to the man with the longer curse and says, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from, the very ground is cursed because of you. Getting food from the ground will be as painful as having babies is for your wife. You'll be working in pain all your life long. 
The ground will sprout thorns and weeds. You'll get your food the hard way, planting and tilling and harvesting, sweating in the fields from dawn to dusk until you return to that ground yourself dead and buried. You started out as dirt and you'll end up as dirt. In the Genesis account, we get this picture that like things have fallen out of order. That this system that God set up to work a certain way under obedience because of rebellion... Um, There's the curse. And then Paul in Romans, uh, when he's kind of laying out his case for why we see things the way they are, in Romans uh, chapter 8, here's what Paul says. He says, the whole creation is groaning. It's groaning to be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So like, the whole creation is groaning. Uh, parasites and sickness in children, these things that we deeply know are wrong. Just, they don't, they don't come from God. God didn't create, God didn't make those things happen. There's these demonic forces that are at work in our world. And the truth is, they're not just at work in our world and in creation, they're like, they're at work within me. Okay, now what I would say to those of us who are Christians here who are interacting with atheism um, is to find this like balance between like humility and compassion. Like people who hold this view oftentimes have these backstories to them, you know, and like the worst thing I think we can do is get posters and yell and protest. Like uh, these people have stories to them. And it requires humility and listening to understand, like Paul Eddy said, like, what, what kind of God do they believe in? However, along with that humility and compassion, I, I would say that we also need to add some conviction. Um, here's in First Peter uh, chapter 3. Author First Peter writes to us uh, that we should have some like, confidence in this, that we should be prepared for interactions like this. This is from the Message Bible. It says, Through thick and thin, keep your hearts at attention and adoration before Christ your Master. Be ready to speak up and tell anyone who asks you why you're living the way that you are. And always with the utmost courtesy. I think those two things go together real well. Why do you live the way that you do? You know, like, everybody else is sleeping in this morning. Why are you here? You at some point have to have an answer for that. And then to have that answer with some kind of courtesy. I thought I would share with you a few reasons why atheism doesn't convince me personally. Okay. Um, Now, uh, on a summer night at Angel Stadium in Orange County, California, I was watching a baseball game. The game was tight, and it was going into the ninth inning. It was all tied up. Uh, So I hope for what every fan hopes for, like on a beautiful summer evening watching a baseball game, I was hoping for extra innings, more bang for my buck. Back and forth, the teams went. One of them would go ahead, and the other would catch up. Um, I played a little baseball of my own, and my birthday is on November 11th, which is 11-11, so it's my lucky number. So every jersey I ever had was number 11. So I'm at this baseball game, and we get into the 11th inning, and the, the angel, uh, the, who I was cheering for, um, number 11 steps up to the plate. Okay, so I'm thinking about this. It's the 11th inning. This is number 11. 11's my lucky number. This guy's going to hit a home run and end the game. And you know what happened? He totally did. He hit a home run in the 11th inning. I looked at the clock. What time was it? It was 11, 11 at night. I had just gotten really, 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 really lucky. Now, speaking of really, 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 really lucky, let's talk about the universe. 
Now, first things first. Um, I totally need you guys to hear this. I am not a scientist. I am not an astrophysicist. I am not an astronomer. In my lifetime, I have known far less about science than scientists have forgotten in like the last hour. (laughs) So there's a lot of extra grace required here for me. Um, So I'm going to try to explain some complicated science using an object that's familiar to folks uh, like me, kind of simple folks. Okay, so um, I want you to think about a TV show called The Price is Right. How many of you have ever seen The Price is Right? Little thin microphone. I, I don't know why they still use that thing. I haven't seen it anywhere else. Thin microphone. My favorite part, they have this big wheel, right? It's literally called the big wheel. And, uh, you know, you spin it, and it makes this clicking noise, and everyone's looking to hit the dollar. If you hit the dollar, then you win big, right? Everyone know what I'm talking about, this big giant wheel that you spin? Okay. Um, there's about 20 different square sections on it. There's the ticking, and there's the red clicks. Um, now, I want to talk to you about what scientists would call the fine-tuning of the universe. Because we're learning that for life to exist, for you to be here in this vast and giant universe, um, we're learning that in order for life to exist the way that it does, it's actually almost impossible. Now, there are 34 and counting parameters of the universe, meaning there's like, so far they've discovered 34, they're constantly adding on to it. There's these different rules and laws of the universe, the way that the universe works. Uh, So we're going to imagine 34 of them. So I want you to imagine, like, if we could, we were going to stack on this stage 34 different uh, prices, right, big wheel spinners, okay? There's going to be 34 of them. Um, Now, in order for the universe to have happened, we're just going to say that what had to happen is all 34 of these uh, prices, right, big wheel spinners all have to get spun to the exact same number. They all have to hit the green dollar, Now think about how hard that is. I hardly ever see it happen on the TV show, let alone 34 of them all to hit at the same time. Now in order for the universe to happen, all 34 of these have to hit on the exact same thing. They can't even be off by one tick. Not one of them, not one of the 34 could be off by even one tick. Now we're just going to look at one of these big wheels of the universe. Uh, It's called the gravitational parameter. Let's take a look at this. I have a little slide talking about this. So, now, I know that you guys all know this, because I know this, right? Uh, Force equals gravity times M1, M2 over R2. Everybody knows this. We use this every day, right? Yeah. Okay. This is called the gravitational constant, right? The attractive force between two bodies is directly proportional to the product of their masses, which is M1 and M2, and inversely proportional to the square of the distance. This is the inverse square law. We all know this. I'm not telling you anything new, right? So G is the gravitational constant. We all know that. So let's take the first, uh, the first Price is Right spinner is the gravitational constant. Now, the first thing that we have to do is, in order for the gravitational constant to be exactly the way that it would have had to be for the universe to exist, we're going to have to put the appropriate amount of ticks on there. Because like on the, on the uh, Price is Right uh, big wheel, there's 20 squares. So like you have a 1 in 20 chance of hitting it. But when it comes to the gravitational constant, there's actually a much smaller chance that you could hit it. So like, how small is this chance? It's actually 1 times 10 to the 60th power. So we're all going to have to work together on this big wheel to make 10 to the 60th power ticks. Do you know how many ticks that's going to be on that wheel? Uh, Just to give you an idea, uh, 10 to the 20th power is the amount of seconds that have existed since time started. 
So we're just going to have to do that three times on this wheel. 10 to the 60th ticks. And then we spin that wheel. And if we're off by one tick, you're not even here. Okay? Now, that sounds almost impossible, right? That's only one of the wheels. There's 34 of those things. At the beginning of the universe, Big Bang Theory, the Big Bang happened, the universe comes into existence, you don't have like a mulligan at that. There's not like a, oh, we missed it by one degree, so like, let's try it again. There is no trying again. When the universe was created that one time, all 34 of these wheels has to hit precisely at the right spot, otherwise there is no life. The question is, did we just get really, 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 really to the 60th power lucky? I can't believe that. Okay, uh, so that's one. That's called the fine-tuning of the universe. The second thing, the reason that I don't believe in atheism, uh, it's called the moral argument. Now, every once in a while, I get into a heated debate with family and friends about something that's really close to my heart that I'm passionate about. Now, the reason we get in a big argument is because all of my friends and all my family members are confused and wrong. Um, It's about ice cream. Like, they all have these different flavors of ice cream that they say are the best. Silly flavors like moose tracks, cookie dough, strawberry, chocolate, vanilla. They'll go on about cherry cheesecake. They're all totally wrong about the flavor of ice cream that's the best. Now, I know the best flavor of ice cream is mint chip. It's a fact. Now, then we get into this argument about subjective and objective. What they say is like, Seth, that's your favorite flavor of ice cream, but your favorite flavor doesn't have to be my favorite flavor, and that's where they're wrong, because there is one right flavor of ice cream. God created it. Jesus loved it. Mint chip. (laughs) It's not subjective. It's objective, right? Now... So what some people would say is like, that's not, you know, that that flavor of ice cream is my truth, but it's not for everybody. And the truth is, things like ice cream are subjective. You can like a different flavor than I like. That's okay. Now back to atheism. Atheism has another problem besides that we had to get really, 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 really lucky. That is, atheism has a moral problem. According to atheism, there is no being that gives us an objective reference point for what's good and bad. Uh, Here's what Richard Dawkins says about this. He says that there is no evil and no good. He says that there's nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Now, the problem is, I just don't believe that. Now, for instance, like, atheists, as soon as you remove the picture of God, then we humans are here by chance. We humans are here by chance. We have evolved highly beyond the animal kingdom. Um, but the way that things go in the animal kingdom is like it's fairly based on chance, right? Like, for instance, when a cat in cold blood stalks and premeditatively murders and then toys with a dead mouse, no one arrests the cat, puts it in kitty prison for premeditated cold-blooded murder, right? We go like, that's, that's just the way that it is. No, we can't expect the cat to have like moral principles. However, we all know that when, when an adult in premeditated and in cold blood kills a child, we all know that that's wrong. 
It's not just wrong for them, but okay for someone else. It's not just the flavor of ice cream that's subjective. We all know that there's an objective truth that doing that is wrong, and it's evil. We know that there are things that are good. We all would agree that things like, uh, things like love, things like justice, these things are good, and they're good everywhere, everywhere for everyone. And we know that other things are bad, and they're not just bad here or because of your culture or what century you grew up in. They're just bad. Things like greed, things like abuse, things like racism, Those aren't just bad given what culture or what perspective you come from. Those are just bad for everyone everywhere. The closer that one gets to love, the more good a thing becomes. Not because of something subjective, because the closer something gets to love, the closer it gets to God. Okay, so here's the moral argument sort of simplified for us. Here's another reason why I don't believe in atheism. If God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. If God doesn't exist, everyone can do anything they want to. But the truth is that objective moral values and duties do exist. We do, when we see injustice, we long for it to be made right. We all know that that's bad. And therefore, because there is an objective moral um, compass for people, and because all of us share it, therefore God exists. The shared sense of good and evil, right and wrong, they point to an objective standard that would make the most sense to be the most loving being in the entire universe, and I happen to choose to believe that that's God. Okay, uh, here's what uh, C.S. Lewis says. Um, C.S. Lewis uh, wrote a book, uh, you should read it, called Mere Christianity, where he talks uh, at length about this uh, explanation of why he believes in God. Now, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there is such a thing as water. People feel sexual desire, well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Okay, now, I deeply long for meaning in my life. I I wake up daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, and I wonder, like, where is my life going? Am I accomplishing something? In my raising of children, in my marriage, and in my work, am I finding like meaning and value? Am I contributing to something? I I did I didn't like read a book about this. This was in me from the very beginning of my life. I long for meaning and I long for purpose. I long for connection. And I also long to see good triumph over evil. Um, Every once in a while I'm driving, uh, some maniac will pull up behind me going much faster than I am, which is hard because I'm usually going pretty fast. Whip around me in the fast lane, cut me off, and there's a little tinge in me. But like, I I want to, to, to turn the corner on the freeway and see a police officer there with that guy pulled over. I always have that little mental fantasy. Like, I, I long for good to overcome evil. Like, I long to sort of be vindicated from this. And this didn't, like, come from anywhere. This was, like, inside of me. I long for meaning, and I long for purpose. I long for good to overcome evil. 
Now, it can't be like every other thing that I have. When I'm hungry, I live in a world of food, and when I'm thirsty, there's water. How cruel would it be to have an existence where I longed for meaning and for purpose and for good to triumph over evil and those things not be possible? Okay, now the last thing I want to say about atheism is I think something that's important to say um, is that faith and science aren't at war with each other. I grew up in kind of a fundamentalist church and... um, we were, uh, it was in the era where the theory of evolution was gaining a lot of ground, and I think our parents and Sunday school teachers were real frightened. If this stuff gets out and gets in our kids, our kids are not going to believe in God anymore. And so what would happen is in, instead of being wowed, actually, by all that science was discovering, we sort of put anyone that was studying science over in this category that they're trying to disprove God. And then these days, there's something in this movement of science called scientism, where uh, there's like no other way of knowing about anything except for the scientific method. And I just want to say, like, there's been a lot of suffering and struggle and pain caused in our world by Christian people looking at the Genesis account and pretending and acting like the Genesis account answers questions that it doesn't try to answer. It's good for Christians always to remember that when reading the Bible, there are original people that are writing, and they're writing in an original time, and they're addressing questions that were there originally. And we're always best to understand what were the original questions, and what did the original people hear when they heard this, to draw our conclusions from this. It's actually quite arrogant to think that we could extract something truthful from a letter that's written without understanding the context of the letter itself that was written. What questions were being answered in Genesis when that was written. The primary question, one of the primary questions, how did, how did we come to find order out of chaos in our world? It's not so much a question for us anymore, although we do experience a good bit of chaos in our own lives. It's not like the chaos of the ancient world. So people sometimes look at this, this ordered structure of seven days of creation and say, like, well, it's pretty clear that creation happened in seven 24-hour periods. And if any scientist says otherwise, then they're from the devil. And this is not true. The Genesis account, after all, it's actually a poem. It's not a science textbook. And actually, as Christian people, I think we should be very interested in the world of science. Science is making amazing discoveries. And did you know there's a lot of Christians working in science? Now, to some people, things like quarks and anti-quarks are exciting and interesting. Some people. What I would say is like those two things are not at war with each other. That science is answering the questions of how did the universe come to be? How does it work? Quarks and anti-quarks and photons and things like the Higgs boson. But what they don't answer the questions of And what faith answers the questions of is why. It's not how, it's why. Uh, In a section of uh, Rob Bell's book called What We Talk About When We Talk About God, he shares a little story I thought I would share it with you. He says, let's say that you work in a large office and one day you come back from lunch and there's a group of people gathered around a cubicle three down from yours, which belongs to Sheila from Accounts Payable. You wander over and you learn that Sheila's boyfriend just proposed to her during a picnic lunch in a nearby park, and she said yes. Everyone's happy for Sheila. They're taking turns looking at her ring, and Sheila can't stop smiling, so you ask her, hey, Sheila, tell us about Simon. And so Sheila starts to tell you about him. 
says, well, he's five foot ten. He drives a Toyota. He wears size nine and a half shoes. He was born in Kentucky. He's left-handed. He's in a Tuesday night bowling league, and he doesn't like mayonnaise. <laughs> and at some point, while Sheila's telling you about Simon, you probably think to yourself, "This is strange." You think this not because Sheila's lying, nor is she avoiding the question or distorting the truth, but she's telling the truth about Simon. Things that can be objectively proven to be true. It's just that women who just got engaged an hour ago don't usually feel the need to tell you whether or not their fiancé likes mayonnaise. Let's say your car is making a loud ticking noise, so you take it to the repair shop. A mechanic looks under the hood, and he takes it for a drive around the block. And then he comes out of the waiting room, and he tells you that the car is in a bad mood. It's clearly got some issues it needs to work out. Well, that's not helpful because you want to know exactly what's wrong with the car, exactly what replacement parts are needed, how long it will take to fix it, how much it's going to cost. Okay, or let's say that you're having open heart surgery and you're lying there on the table with your rib cage spread open and you hear the surgeon say to one of the nurses, hey, give me one of those scalpels over there. How about a feisty one with some attitude? (laughs) Now, aside from the obvious question, which is, why are you awake during open heart surgery? Why would it disturb you to hear the doctor talk like this? It's because you want to know that the surgeon knows exactly what scalpel that she needs. You want to hear her ask for something like an RQ8F7 double-edged incisatron or something like that. You see, there are, it's important to note, different kinds of language and different kinds of knowing. There is technical precise language, the kind that surgeons and car mechanics use to be as objective as possible in naming exactly what is wrong. But when Sheila's going on about Simon telling you facts and truths and being precise about how tall he is and where he was born, something doesn't feel right because what you want Sheila to say and what you're expecting Sheila to say is something like, I feel like I finally found my other half. Technical language has limits. Science has limits. It can describe some things well, but in other situations like love, it falls flat, it's inadequate, and it fails. Look at this verse from Colossians where Paul writes about this. Everything of God gets expressed in him, which is Jesus. You can see and hear him clearly. You don't need a telescope, you don't need a microscope, and you don't need a horoscope to realize the fullness of Christ and the emptiness of the universe without him. When you come to him, that fullness comes together for you too. His power extends over everything. The reason why atheism isn't for me is because I realize the emptiness of my own life and the universe without him. But it is literally the craziest thing that I've heard of and interacted with tons and tons of people who had a very robust faith in Jesus Christ. And they said that they believed strongly in him and didn't believe in in atheism that that we exist with no purpose But then I watch some of the Christians that I know, people that claim to be Christians, live an atheist life. You see, being an atheist isn't just an intellectual belief system. Because we're not just intellectual beings. We're beings that choose the way that we live. And in the same way that atheists are choosing a without God life, I think that the calling of Christians is not just to subscribe to a religious belief, but to choose to live a with God life. Do you know that in the Bible, the the primary promise that God makes to human beings, it's not that he'll provide for them, it's not that he'll forgive sin, he definitely will do both of those things. The primary promise of the Bible is that God will be with you. 
Think about that. God offers to every human being the opportunity to live life with God. We get this illustrated um, in this metaphor of this thing that we do all the time, walking. Um, Just a, a brief reading from a book by John Orper. He says this. He says, the Bible is, among other things, a list of unforgettable walks. Think about that. The first one is taken by God himself who used to walk in the garden in the cool of the day with the human beings, and it says that he loved being with them. There was the hard walk that Abraham took with his son Isaac. That was a hard walk. There was a liberating walk that Moses took with the Hebrew people through the space that used to be occupied by the Red Sea. That was an amazing walk. There was the frustrating walk taken by the Hebrews all through the desert for 40 years to get to the Promised Land when it could have been much simpler That was a roundabout walk. There was Joshua's triumphant walk around Jericho. The disciples' illuminating walk on the road to Emmaus. There was Paul's interrupted and miraculous walk on the way to Damascus. Remember that one? There was Peter's courageous, miraculous, and very brief walk on water. But there was a walk so sad and holy that it received its own name. The walk from the Praetoria to Golgotha, that walk is called the Via Dolorosa, the way of great sorrow. The way of great sorrow. At the end of the day, I just want everybody in this room to know, I don't have any idea where you all are at. Some of you may be deeply offended by things I said about atheism, and my apologies if that came across the wrong way. Some of you may be Christians for a long time, new Christians. Some of you may just literally feel utterly lost. And what I'd want to say to you is like at every moment in time, every human being can simply choose a with God life. There's a phrase that gets used in the Bible for people that seem like they get the God life right. And it literally is called walking with God. And there's a consistent pattern for people that walk with God. There's always a calling that's almost always followed up by fear. There's almost always encouragement. But there's always a decision. You can't walk with God unless you choose it. And there's always a change in life. There is no one who has ever walked with God and been the same. But there are those who say no this walk and they're changed too they're a little less likely to respond the next time filled with maybe a little more fear they're a little bit more distant a little more likely to say no the next time and a little further from being with the one who wants to be with you I guess there's like two things that I would say about this. One is why would you ever want to live your life without the person who authored it? I was in my small group the other night, and uh, at our small group of adults, we do icebreakers. And the reason we do icebreakers is because adults are just like teenagers. They're just older. So we were doing this icebreaker, and uh, the icebreaker was like, if you could meet and hang out with one person from history, who would it be? And like there were some amazing answers. People were like super spiritual 
Um, you know, they picked a Bible character. We, we just said no one could pick Jesus because then everyone would pick Jesus and then it'd be a dumb icebreaker. It wouldn't go anywhere. Some people pick like scientists and like incredible people from history. And uh, now a few years ago, um, actually like in the, in the early 2000s, I fell in love with a technology company, which is weird. I talked about this in a sermon quite a few years ago. But the problem is the lure of this technology company is so powerful that they accurately chose their logo because they chose the fruit that's been tempting human beings for like centuries and centuries, right? It's the apple. And so I I thought about it and I said, you know what, if I could could spend time with anyone in history right now... um, I would, I was, it was just after Steve Jobs had died, and I said, like, I would love to sit down with an iPhone with Steve Jobs. I would love to see how does Steve Jobs use this device that he invented. It's amazing. Um, which, is a, which pales in comparison to the concept of living life with the person who created it. The second thing I would say about this is like, why would, why would you ever not want to learn about love from the being who is completely love? Ephesians chapter 3, Paul, um, he says it this way, and, uh, and then we're going to get ready to wrap up. So if the worship team would come up. Um, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. This is what Christ is really after, to make his home in your heart. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide and how long and how high and how deep, how deep that love is. And I'm just here to tell you, it's like a little kid who didn't get a lot of love in my first years of life. That this, this love that God has, is, it's wide, and it is long, and it's deep. Here's a couple questions I would love for you to think about um, as I'm closing up this sermon. After the sermon, we're going to worship. Um, I just wonder for you, how much are you personally experiencing God walking with you right now? Like, literally today, there's this invitation to walk this way with God. How are you growing the love of God in your life? Like, how are you doing that? Who's walking alongside of you in this? And the last one I wonder about is whose picture of God is being affected by your life and you're living it? Like the thing about a with God life is a with God life affects other people. People like all the folks that we started off in this sermon who have this view of a monstrous God. People will walk around with the view of a monstrous God until they run into someone who gives them a picture of a different one. Whose picture of God is being affected by your life right now? I would just literally beg you to whatever degree that you're able and capable, would you just like make this choice that what you want is a with God kind of a life? And for whatever my word is worth, I would just say it's like it's deeply worth it.